we've uh, had some good feedback from people because uh, it's been a series where we sought to be honest and open and realistic and not triumphalistic. And uh, I think it's dug deep in a lot of people's lives. And um, we talked about defeating the blues, despondency, because there's always hope in God. We talked about defeating the reds, anger, because we can know the peace that makes no sense. We talked about defeating the greens, envy, because as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we get a true eternal perspective. And last week, Christian spoke about defeating the yellows. That's the the fears that uh, very often can sort of be within our lives. And we can defeat the fears because our trust is in the Lord. And uh, God's been good to us. And uh, there's been a little competition developing in Arena Church over those weeks as to what the next colour is going to be. Somebody said to me last week, it's got to be black or white. It's neither of those. Because this morning, friends, we're going to be talking about defeating the beige. And it will come up on the screen in a moment. There it is. And if it looks bland, it's because for this morning, it's going to be bland. And uh, we're going to defeat it in Jesus' name. Now, let me just give a disclaimer, because you might like beige. And you might like wearing things that are beige. I was just looking at the sort of stone tops over our windows that are sort of magnolia. And they look a bit beigey. Um, so... I understand that, but here's the truth. As, just as blue stood for despondency and reds for anger and greens for envy and yellow for fear, this morning, friends, I'm going to be encouraging us both individually and collectively over these next few minutes to be defeating of mediocrity in our lives. Because whether we like it or not, this morning, beige stands for exactly that in terms of the context of the message, and it needs to be defeated A literal definition of beige is a fabric of undyed wool that lacks colour. Bland, dull, miserable. And as Christians, individually and collectively, we're called to be the exact opposite. I'd like you to go to your Bibles in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the first two verses. And as we minister at times, ministry sometimes will be exactly on a verse. It'll be three or four points from a verse... Or a few verses around that particular reading within a chapter. But sometimes the the reading sends us on a launch pad to sort of look at a number of other passages, which I'll do this morning. And then at the end, I'm going to bring us right back to Romans 12. But the Bible says in Romans 12 and verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. That word, therefore, is for a reason. It's the pivotal word of the whole of the 16 chapters of Romans. And there have been people that have spent years simply studying the book of Romans. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an amazing expository preacher in Westminster uh, Chapel in London for many years, got so into Romans that he used to produce books that thick that were just on a few verses. And uh, people in, in another era perhaps used to drool over them and thought they were incredible. Therefore, and it speaks about the previous 11 chapters, because Romans is an amazing book. It's deep in terms of its understanding of God and where we stand before him. And there are three words that bring us to chapter 12. The first word is sin. 
I understand that it's a word that people don't like to hear about nowadays and even the church can be accused of being politically incorrect by using it. Got to say, friends, so be it because it is a Bible word. It means literally to miss the mark and the Bible says in Romans that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says that there's no one righteous, no, not one. But here's the good news because not only sin but salvation. In that God so loved us, he was so passionate about a relationship He was so longing to invade Arena Church on this July morning, here in 2011, that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on our our behalf. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we didn't love him, he loved us. And he brought us to himself. There have been people here in church this morning that have been saved 20, 30, 40 years and are still finding it an amazing experience to know that they're saved. For other people... The journey's only just begun, and maybe for you this morning, it's a journey that needs to start right now. The third word is sanctification, because not only are we saved, but actually the journey then is for us to reflect the very image of God in our lives, to become more and more and more like Jesus. And frankly, friends, this is one of the reasons that we do church on Sunday. We're not defined simply by this, but it's to input us, to inspire us, to cheer us on, to motivate us all, not only just to get saved, but then to become devoted followers of Jesus Christ and give our whole lives over to him. Therefore, in the light of all that God has done for us and is doing for us, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. The language is very specific and deliberate in the sense that in the Old Testament order, and I'll come back to this in a moment, people would bring animal sacrifices to God as a sign of the covering of their sin. It was temporary, it was momentary, and it was only for a season. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse 12 that Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever, then sat down at the right hand of God. So we don't need to add to that this morning. We can't bring about salvation in our own strength, our own efforts. But the language is very particular because no longer is the sacrifice something expressed in an animal but actually now we bring the living sacrifice of our very lives to God in Jesus Christ and say God it's all yours so what about mediocrity well I think the enemy of our souls has done a brilliant job on the Christian church and the Christian faith by daubing the church continually in beige paint so that everybody thinks that it's colourless and lifeless. Go across to Tesco and stand outside the entrance hall as people going to get their weekly shop and say, we're doing a survey. I say, church, you say, and you get all those reactions. Because people think, friends, the church is beige. They think that we're average. They think that we're colourless. They think that we're lifeless. They think that we're committed to mediocrity. And it's actually a travesty of the expression of the kingdom. The root meaning of the word literally, mediocrity, derives from from France, from a French word, and it literally means, and it's a little phrase I'm going to use throughout the ministry this morning, it literally means middling. Or if you want another expression, a middle state or average. Someone says that mediocrity is climbing molehills without sweating. Someone says that height of mediocrity is always still too low. In other words, friends, That we think that the destiny of our lives is a middle state, an averageness. Not getting too sort of worked up about everything, but just meandering through life. It's not what God's called us to. 
He's called us to something far greater than that. An arena church prophetically needs to stand up in these days, friends, and challenge every aspect of middling that would seek to be placed upon our lives. I said to Christian a few days ago, before, the, before this ministry was completed, its preparation, that it's almost to me sometimes palpable in my spirit that there is something that sits over this community and over this area and over this region of the East Midlands and even over the Midlands context as a whole that would seek to define us as mediocre. That would seek to press us into being a middling sort of people. It literally sits in the heavens. And sometimes it's verbalized by people. It's acted upon. And you can see it working out. And it must be contested for by the people of God that are seeing something bigger in their day. Mediocrity is passionless. Mediocrity, friends, is irrelevant. It takes the middle of the road course every time. It's superficial. It's miserly. That word was in the notes before Christian even mentioned it during the offering. And it's a travesty of the reflection of the kingdom of God. And this morning I want to just give three Old Testament examples of the people of God's that found themselves on several occasions giving expression to middling. They were content with the average. They were content with just moseying along and just seeing life pass them by. Firstly, there was the expression of middling in committing. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. And if you read that chapter, and clearly we've not got time to read it this morning, and we're not going to spend a lot of time at any of these station points But if you read that chapter, you'll find that it's a time of drought in the nation, literally. It had not rained for a long time. And the prophet Elijah comes to confront the situation. The reality is, friends, that in our nation today, we experience spiritual drought. It works itself out all across the Western world. And some of you that travel will have seen that and spoken to people about it. What needs to happen is that the church of Jesus Christ, the advancing, prevailing, relevant, contemporary church, needs to address that because mediocre is not bothered about the drought. It just says, oh, well, somebody will sort it out. But people that are passionate about God begin to speak something into that situation to believe that rain will come, that God will pour something from his heavens in a new way that will transform the situation. And it can even happen suddenly. You see, revival very often appears to happen suddenly, and it does. But actually it doesn't. Because what happens is that people, friends, that refuse to commit to middling, begin to pray for the drought to turn around. And then God breaks in and does something that is way beyond our imagination. Friends, whatever we see around as a spiritual drought, God wants to bring an answer. And in verse 21, Elijah comes to the people of God and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God's God, let's serve him. And if Baal's God, let's serve him. I like the King James Version this morning. And there's a ye in it. And I'm going to speak it unashamedly. He says, how long halt ye between two opinions? And friends, how long are we going to do it? How long are we going to halt between two opinions? The shades here of Revelation 3. And 15 and 16, where God says to the Laodicean church, I don't want you, you're right, it's no good either being hot or cold because you're in the middle. You're tepid, you're lukewarm. And I'd rather, I'd rather you be one or the other, but please don't be middling. Please don't be average. 
Please don't be tepid. Please don't be lukewarm. How long hold you between two opinions? Friends, how long is it going to take you to make that decision to become a first-time follower of Jesus? You've been coming with your friends to Arena Church, but God says, now is the day of salvation. Today's the day for you to make a commitment to follow the Lord. How long is it before you are going to make a wholehearted commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? One of the expressions, friends, of discipleship is baptism. And so in the autumn, the next time we have baptism, you say, my name's first on the list. Because it's the next stage of me saying, I'm not for middling. I'm here for nailing my colours to the mast of following Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do it publicly. What about, friends, whether we're going to forever sort of live with life centering around us, where Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that actually life needs to centre around him. You see, dithering is middling, and... God doesn't want us to hold between two opinions. Not only middling in terms of our committing, but also middling in terms of our offering. In Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 to 14, we see there an expression of Old Testament worship. that sees the people bringing to the priests animal sacrifices that I've already said were an expression of their worship to God that covered their sin and made atonement. And of course, they all pointed to the sacrifice, the turning point of civilization when Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross. And God says to these people in Malachi 1, you're showing contempt for my name. And they were aghast. They said, really? How are we doing that, Lord? And he went on to say to them that you're doing that by bringing less than your best to me. And the way that they did that was that they were bringing defiled, blemished, animal sacrifices to the Lord when God had told them to do the very opposite and to bring something that wasn't blemished and wasn't defiled. And God said to the people, you say the altar of God is not important anymore and worship of God is no longer a priority. And middling friends, he's saying to God, that's enough. Middling is coming with an indifferent, apathetic attitude to church and letting everybody else take the strain and going out completely untouched. And sometimes it goes on for weeks and months and years. When was the last time that the word of the Lord went right back to you and made a difference? You can say I'm not going to be middling. <laughs> when was it? When was it? I tell you, friends, God so speaks to me so regularly. If you've got a heart to open and hear God's voice, that will continually change us. But we come to God, we go through the motions, and God very, very clearly says we're in danger of showing contempt for his name. And thirdly, not only middling in committing and middling in offering, but also middling in prioritizing, because in Haggai chapter 1, we see there God speaking to the people. Don't spend the next 20 minutes trying to find it, but it is there in the Bible. It's two little verse, two little chapters right towards the end of the Bible. Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai. You'll find it somewhere later. But it's a fantastic book that speaks right into today's world. And it was a season in the, in the people of God's journey where there was little fruitfulness and God came with an answer. He says, the reason for the fruitlessness in your lives, it's because you are committed to middling. And here's how it was working out. They were building their own houses and completely neglecting the house of the Lord that stood in ruins. What was the journey of that? Well, the journey was this. 
that God, through David's inspirational leadership, had released Solomon to build an amazing temple to God. And the people had rejected God and so the Babylonians came down from the north and raised it to the ground. And for 70 years, many of the people of God stayed in exile. But then God began to bring about his purposes again. People began to come back to the lands. They began to build their own houses, but they said, the house of God, forget it. Because either by experience or by what people told them, they remembered the grandeur of the house before and said it's not worth building a new one. And friends, if I had five quid for every time somebody has said to me in church life, it's not worth us doing what we're doing now because it will never be as good as the past. I would be in glorious early retirement on a beach in Florida somewhere, sort of sunning it up. Because so many people have tried to define me and define us by what's taken place in the past. Now, if you listen to Arena Church carefully, you'll know that Arena Church is very honoring of the past, but it will not be defined by it. And it cannot be defined by what's taken place in the past. There's been some expression of this Pentecostal, spirit-filled community of believers in this town since 1929, when they began to meet above a garage called Taylor's. And we thank God for all of that. But it's 2011, with a needy world that has got a contemporary, so many contemporary issues, and we must not be defined by the past. You say, well, it's never going to be as good as when I first became a Christian. It's never going to be as good as when Pastor so-and-so was leading the church. It's never, even though he's been dead 73 years, it's never going to be as good as this and that. And we all get defined by it. What do we do? So we start concentrating on ourselves and stop building the house that God is interested in now. It's mediocrity. It's signing up for mediocrity. And Haggai, friends, came with a word from the Lord. And it was simply this. I am with you. And it turned the whole thing around. And they got inspired, friends, to change their priorities because God said this. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. You see, our greatest days, friends, are not behind us. They're in front of us. The destiny, friends, that God has called the church to enter into, friends, is not past. It's, it's present and future. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. They needed stirring up because they committed themselves to their thing at the rejection of his thing. I wonder about us. I wonder about when the challenges of priority come to our life. We're always thinking about ourselves first. That is signing up, friends, for middling it. And it needs to change. Now you might be saying, ha, huh, well, it's all very well that, Phil, but three Old Testament pictures. Aren't we under grace? We sure are. We are not under law. But is grace calling us to something lesser than that? Listen to what Titus says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, the grace of God brings salvation that is expressed to all men. It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives, self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, grace doesn't fuel mediocrity, it fights it. Every single time. And in the closing moments of this ministry this morning, I want to bring this whole series to a conclusion by reminding us 
of what God is initiating and desiring and seeing in the earth right now. And whatever God's doing, friends, he's doing through his church. And I'll prove that in a moment. He's doing it through communities of people that find expression in all sorts of different styles. That have got a commitment not to middle, not to be average, not to take the middle of the road course. But to be passionate about serving their saviour, Jesus Christ, and making him famous in the earth. And if you doubt that, then during this summer, I want you to read Ephesians. It's found in the New Testament. It's six chapters. You could read it in one sitting. You'd do it in 35, 40 minutes. Or you may want to take a chapter a day, or you may even want to go slower than that. But I want to encourage you over these next summer weeks, as we continue to fuel faith here in church, to read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Because there you see a brilliant expression of what God is doing in the earth in these days. As I've already said, he's doing it through his church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that Jesus so loved the church that he loved it and he gave himself for it. He shed his blood. He poured out his life on the cross because he saw down the history of time, the the future of time, a, a community of believers that would respond to God and give everything to him. And if you read Ephesians, you see a church that's blessed with all spiritual blessings. You see a church that's surrendered to the headship of Christ. You see a church that's kissed by grace, that inspires works. We're not doing works because we have to. We're doing works because we want to. You see a church with no ethnic divide because the middle wall has been broken down. No racism, no sexism, no feminism. No prejudice, friends, because God has made us one in Jesus Christ. You see in chapter 4, a church of unity and maturity and ministry. As God gives government headship gifts to the church of apostle and prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher. Not to do all the work, friends, but to inspire the whole of the body to rise itself out of any sense of a middling spirit to be all that God has called us to be in our own unique gift. We see a church that reflects the very life of God that puts off the old and puts on the new. We see a church, friends, that lives out its faith in family and home and work and social relationships. We see a church that engages in a spiritual battle. Be helpful if you just get all that little laugh, thank you. and, And we see all of that, friends. And right at the heart of that, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, we see, friends, some verses that Literally define my life. If that sounds a bit over the top, they are. This is really what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's it's really what's caused me to bring a a response to God in my heart again and again and again. Because it says there in verse 10 of Ephesians, His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's the true reflection of the church. You see, that word manifold in the original Greek text finds expression literally in meaning the many varied colours of God's wisdom. See, church is not beige, friends. Church is a kaleidoscope of spectral colour that is vivid and bright and attractive and unmissable. Church, friends, is learners and followers. It's the artistic and the artisans. Church is teachers and learners. Church is spiritual and practical. Church is team that finds its expression of saying, I'm part of everybody. Church is prayerful and prophetic. It's word and works. It's men and women. It's boys and girls. 
Church is young and old, it's multi-generational. Church is grounded and yet contemporary, mature yet innovative. Church is the doctor and the cleaner, and we are both in this church on the same row on Sunday morning, having expressed the dignity of work and their spirituality in their workplace through the week in very different ways, lifting holy hands to God and bringing their distinct color of worship, and God loves it. That's the church. And even in recent weeks, friends, Christian out of his specific gift, and part of what he brings to this church, has been talking to some of the most influential people in this area, both in civic worlds, commercial world, and public services. As an expression, if I can put this in a respectful way to those people of the principalities and powers, the worldly way of doing things, has spoken just a little of what Arena Church does in terms of the many varied colours of the expression of God's wisdom, and they have been in awe. See, it's the eternal heart of God. And God calls us, friends, to be part of exactly that. As I close, what will all this mean to you and to me? Well, it's a call from the shadows. It's a call from the valley of indecision. It's a call, friends, for us to stop signing up to average to take in the easy route. It's a call, friends, for a first-time response from you today to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask him to forgive me of everything I've done wrong in my life. I'm giving my life over to him. It's a commitment, friends, to a local church, a community of believers that signs up, Arena Church, part of it, to say, in these days, we are refusing to do middling. It's a response, friends, to that challenge of when was the last time that I did something for the first time. It's a call, friends, to happy, scared steps of faith, and I take them most days in this particular season of my life that says I'm not going to do mediocre. Or is it dwelling, bemoaning, introspecting, internalizing, delaying? No, friends, God calls us to defeat the beige. Just occasionally I get the Nottingham Evening Post... On one of those occasions recently, I was reading about the refurbishment of the William Booth Memorial Hall right down there, just on the edge of Snenton on Huntingdon Street. Some of you will know it well. And uh, there was a wonderful article about the renovation and the several hundred thousand pounds that have been invested to make the building fit for the 21st century. The Army Major was speaking about that enthusiastically and giving everybody a welcome to the services But then, as an inset to that article, there was this article. It's it's quite lengthy, and I'm nearly finished. But I want you to stay with me, because he's one of my heroes, in terms of reading about him. He's a son of the same city as me. And he's someone that, friends, in his life, refused to commit to middling. The Victorian streets of London's East End were a teeming cesspit of stinking tenements and alleys where life was cheap, And the only escape was with a bottle of gin. People starved. Disease was rife. Children were bought and sold and a woman's virtue could be purchased for a few pence. But in 1865, a tall bearded man, raised amidst poverty in Nottingham slums, brought a message of hope which would blaze across the empire. He was William Booth, a charismatic figure with a fervent belief in the Bible and a yearning to help his fellow man. 
Born in 1829 in Slenton, Nottingham, his first job was in a Nottingham pawn shop where he got his first experience of the evils of deprivation. The wretched plight of the masses crammed into Whitechapel were therefore all too familiar. Outside a bawdy tavern, he listened to evangelists struggling to get their message across to an unruly mob who jeered and insulted anyone who dared to speak. But they listened to Booth as he told them, there is a heaven in East London for everyone who will step out and think and look to Christ as their personal saviour. And it was his moment of destiny. Booth, supported by his formidable wife Catherine, founded a Christian mission in the London East End, at first trying to recruit the down and outs to visit local churches. But the churches didn't provide much of a welcome for Booth's converts, beige even then. A mixture of drunks and jailbirds. There was no other choice. Booth had to start his own organisation, run on military lines, its members in uniform, hammering out a message that was supported by playing of musical instruments of temperance and social justice. Salvationists were hunted down by armed mobs. Their meetings broken up by brute force. Pimps and publicans forced them in front of biased judges and hostile juries to face trumped-up charges, which often ended in people going to unjust prison sentences. Booth himself would often return home from an evening's evangelism with his clothes torn and filthy, his head in a bloody bandage to cover a wound inflicted by stone-throwing thugs. Booth and his followers would not be swayed. They fought against the perils of drink and they fought for the welfare of children. They fought for social reform and they battled neglect. And in 1904, the son of Nottingham was summoned to Buckingham Palace where King Edward VII says, you are doing a great job. It spread around the globe like a prairie fire. The message of hope now translated into 175 languages and today reaching over 110 countries from Angola to Zimbabwe simply because somebody said, I'm not doing middling. And all over this room, friends, there's a destiny. Some of you don't even believe it. Some of you have signed up for average years ago. Said, well, it's just me. I tell you, friends, average should, could so easily define me. It so easily could define me. In terms of my background, in terms of my education, in terms of my whole journey, friends, I could so easily personally settle for the middle of the road. But the word of the Lord comes. And Romans 12, 1 to 2, courtesy of Eugene Peterson says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention upon God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops a well-formed maturity in you. That sort of Christian and that sort of local church, friends, is what God is looking for in this important day in which we live. As we serve Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as we seek from this church to work out ministry 
locally, regionally, cross-culturally, and to the ends of the earth. As we find our place in what God is doing for us, it may be true that we can't all rise up to be an apostolic leader like Booth, but we can all serve God with a passion. And God's looking for those churches. He's not bothered what the name is on the front. He's not bothered what the journey is. He's not bothered too much about the style. He's looking for people and churches that will respond to what God says in his word. Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Because those sorts of people are not only committed to defeating the blues and the reds and the greens and the yellows. They're a community of people that will have no truck with mediocrity. And those sort of people, by God's grace, will be forever defeating the beige. Let's pray.